0: Well, church, as uh, we continue our worship this morning and we turn to the worship in the Word, let's take a moment to bow in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you, Lord, for our sweet time of worship together. We thank you, Lord, for just the time to focus ourselves off of ourselves, off of our week and fully and completely onto you. And in this moment, we pray that you would focus our heart and our minds on your Word. We know, Lord, that your word is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And so we pray that it would enlighten our minds and guide us and direct us in our lives throughout the week. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, On January 15, 2009, a pilot by the name of Chesley Sullenberger took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. Two minutes after takeoff, the pilot of US Airways flight 1549 had an emergency on his hands as the plane flew into a flock of Canadian geese. Some of the geese were sucked into the plane's engines. Almost immediately, the aircraft began to vibrate and the engines shut down. Solenberger had to make an emergency landing and successfully did so in the Hudson River, saving all 155 on board. Having learned to fly at the age of 16, a graduate the Air Force Academy, and one who flew fighter jets before turning to commercial aviation, he was asked what he was thinking during those three and a half minutes between the moment when the engine shut down and the moment when he landed that plane in the Hudson River, and this was his response. It was simple and straightforward. My training kicked in. This morning, as we're gathered together, I wanna take some time to talk about our training As believers, the training we're given in light of God's word that prepares us to endure adversity or overcome pressures of persecution when they come. My prayer is that if ever we should face adversity... If ever as believers we should experience pressures of persecution, in that moment we won't have to think about how we are to respond, but we will react with the muscle memory that has already been downloaded in our mind in regards to how the Word of God instructs us. And so this morning I invite you to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in the first six verses together as we talk about this training we've been given in God's Word to prepare for adversity, and for to prepare for pressures of a persecution when they come, and endure them when they come. You know, as you make your way there in your Bibles, as we've said throughout this letter, this is about. Uh, well, this is a letter uh, written to a people who are facing growing pressures of persecution. History tells us for these believers, things are not going to get progressively better. They are going to get progressively worse. And Peter throughout this letter has been instructing believers and preparing them for what lies ahead. And when we were together last at the end of chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, Peter there reminded believers the way that you prepare for adversity and for the pressures of persecution is by staying focused on Christ is by placing your hope in Jesus and what he has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And having instructed us at the end of chapter 3 to put our hope in Jesus, now in chapter 4 in the first six verses, he talks to us how to live in light of that hope. And this is very practical for us this morning as we, pray, as we prepare for adversity, as we prepare for pressures of persecution that are growing in an increasingly hostile culture against the things of God and the people of God. How are we to live in light of the hope that we have in Jesus? Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but the will of God. For we have spent enough time in our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, In The The Word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we turn to the instruction manual we've been given in light of the Christian life we've been called to, how are we to live in light of the hope that we've been given, in light of what Christ has accomplished through His death, burial, resurrection, and subsequent ascension, where He reigns and rules over all? In in verse 1, we are first instructed to remember Christ's suffering. Remember Christ's suffering. Peter begins chapter 4 by pointing them back to chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. With the first word, he says, therefore. Therefore, since Christ suffered with, for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And so what Peter does at the beginning of chapter 4 is he points us back to chapter 3, verse 18, where we first read about the suffering of Christ. Now, last time we were together, we talked about chapter 3, verse 18. And what Peter is instructing us to do here is remember what we talked about last time. You know, whenever God repeats himself in Scripture or points us back to be reminded of what he has already spoken about, we better pay close attention because we need to be reminded of it. Chapter 3, verse 18, Peter wrote this about the suffering of Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just. For the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Uh, it's important for me to review what we talked about last time in verse 18, concerning the kind of suffering Christ experienced and endured and the extent of suffering that he experienced. Last time we were together in chapter three, verse 18, we talked about Christ's suffering, and we're to remember, not just that he suffered, but the significance of it, Christ's suffering, as we talked last time, was severe. Christ's suffering was severe to the point of death on a cross. The reason Christ suffered severely is because God is holy and because sin is costly. And that Christ was the only one who could go and pay the debt of guilty sinners. And so his suffering was severe to the point of death. Last time we were together, we also talked about Christ's suffering was sufficient. That Christ died once for sins. In the Old Testament, Uh, When there were sacrifices made, those sacrifices were made year after year after year. But when Christ laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sin, that sacrifice was final. And all those who deal with their sins at the cross, all sins past, present, and future have been forgiven. His suffering was sufficient. We need to remind ourselves of that, not just week after week, but day after day. Christ's suffering was also substitutionary. We're reminded that Christ died as the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's suffering was substitutionary. Christ met the righteous requirements of the law so that he could die in your place and mine and transfer to our account righteousness. His suffering was substitutionary. We need to remember that and preach that to ourselves and our families and those around us moment by moment and day by day. His suffering was also successful to accomplish the purpose for why he came back in chapter 3, verse 18. We talked about how Christ came in order to reconcile guilty sinners who were far from God to be close to God his suffering was successful. But lastly, if I could add one more S, his suffering was short-lived. In light of the eternal glory that God will have when he rules and reigns forevermore, the suffering that he experienced was short-lived. And for anyone who experiences adversity for the cause of Christ, For anyone who faces growing pressures of persecution, this is the encouragement to them and this is the encouragement to us. If we've been united with Christ in suffering in this life, we will be united with Christ in the next one when he reigns and rules over all and the temporary suffering of this life does not compare to the eternal glory of heaven. It's a reminder this morning that the sweetness of knowing Jesus And experiencing what it means to be united with him through his death, his burial, and his resurrection surpasses the bitterness of any suffering that we should experience in this life. First, we need to remember his suffering. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Before I move forward, let me just talk about practical ways to do that. First, I'd encourage us to take time to remember Christ's suffering by continuously reading about it. Uh, if there's a text to memorize, if you want to talk to others about suffering, take time to memorize chapter 3, verse 18, or chapter uh or 2 Corinthians 5.21. These are great scriptures to memorize. When you think about Christ's suffering as it's shared all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New, do you know where the first place that Christ's suffering is mentioned? For some of you, you may think of the Psalms or their Messianic Psalms. You might think of Psalm 22, where Christ quoted that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you may think of the suffering that was shared by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant, but the First time in scripture when we read about the suffering of Christ is all the way in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall. And there in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, uh, as as God speaks to the serpent, but I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Listen, Christ would... Would, would, would send the final blow to the head of Satan he would crush the head of the serpent and he did that through conquering sin death and Satan on the cross but it says that Satan the serpent would bruise his heel that speaks of the suffering Christ would experience. Take time to read about Christ's suffering in his word, both the Old Testament and New. Take time to read about it in the Gospels, in the Epistles, all throughout Scripture. You'll read about the suffering of Christ and take moment by moment to reflect on the significance of that suffering. It's not enough to say, yes, I believe Christ suffered. We must state the significance of why he suffered. His suffering was severe unto death because my sin is costly in God is holy I need to be reminded that his suffering was sufficient for my sins all sins past present and future are forgiven and I need to be reminded of that daily because unfortunately I sin daily now I'm looking a little bit more like Jesus day by day in this process of sanctification or hopefully I am we're not we have not reached perfect sinless perfection but we are on the way As God conforms us into the likeness of Christ and one day we will be fully like Christ where this flesh will be no more. And we need to be reminded of that again and again. So read about it. Secondly, remember Christ's suffering by praying about it. You know, as you take time to pray with God on a daily basis during your quiet time, take time to thank him for the suffering that he endured on your behalf and and mine. Don't just take time to thank him for his suffering and the significance of it, but also take time to reflect on the suffering that he experienced, especially in those moments of confession of sin. You know, when you confess your sins and and we're reminded of 1 John one night, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that's helpful and that's a reminder that we need to hold on to. But sometimes we forget the cost of sin. And in those moments of sin, sin, we should be reminded what motivates us to live a life set apart to God is the fact that sin cost a heavy price. It cost Christ his life. Yes, forgiveness and salvation is free, but it's not cheap. And when you take time to recognize the extent of Christ's suffering, it causes you in that moment of confession to say, thank you, that you've paid for all my sins, past, present, and future, but thank you that you give me the power through the Holy Spirit to live a life holy and set apart to you. Reminds me of Paul, Romans 6, verse 1. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Paul says in the most emphatic way possible, meganoita, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? For we've been united with Christ, he goes on to say through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Take time to pray about it. Remember Christ's suffering by praying about it. Thirdly, remember Christ's suffering by, by singing about it. You know, on a Sunday morning when we come and gather and worship together, we want to sing about what Christ has accomplished through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and also his ascension. As he reigns and rules over all, the content of our music should reflect the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, A couple weeks ago, as we celebrated Good Friday, three days before Easter, uh, we have a service here and. Uh, We were going through the service talking about the various songs that we would sing in light of the significance of what it means that Christ suffered and died and the significance of it. And one of the songs we added almost last minute as Pastor Greg added in there and and as we were talking about was Man of Sorrows, a, 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 a hymn written in the 1800s and I just want to take a moment to read that to you by Philip Paul Bliss. Philip Paul Bliss may not be a man you're familiar with, but he is the one who, who added music to It Is Well With My Soul. In the 1800s, he wrote this, Man of Sorrows, listen to these lyrics, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. BEARING SHAME AND SCOFFING RUDE, IN MY PLACE CONDEMNED HE STOOD, SEALED MY PARDON AND WITH HIS BLOOD, HALLELUJAH, WHAT A SAVIOR, Guilty, VILE, AND HELPLESS WE, SPOTLESS LAMB OF GOD WAS HE, FULL ATONEMENT CAN IT BE, HALLELUJAH, WHAT A SAVIOR, LIFTED UP WAS HE TO DIE, IT IS FINISHED WAS HIS CRY, NOW IN HEAVEN EXALTED HIGH, HALLELUJAH, WHAT A SAVIOR, When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring the new, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Take time to sing about it. And then lastly, remember Christ's suffering by taking time to talk about it. As believers and as Christians, we need to talk about the suffering of Christ and its significance, not just with those we know in the church, but our families, with our children, with the next generation, don't just share that Christ suffered, shared the significance behind it. His suffering was severe to the point of death. It was sufficient. It was substitutionary. It was successful. He reconciled guilty sinners back to himself and it was short-lived because the eternal glory that we will experience doesn't compare to the present suffering that we may face in this life remember Christ's suffering secondly how do we live in light of the hope of what Christ has accomplished through his death burial resurrection and subsequent ascension as he reigns and rules over all by means of ebulating Christ's example follow Christ's example the text goes on to say therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh as we remember Christ's suffering secondly arm yourselves also with the same mind so what we're encouraged to do here is follow the example of Christ by adopting the mindset of Christ, one of suffering. How do we follow the example of Christ? The first way is by recognizing that the Christian life is not a playground. The Christian life is a battleground. What the text tells us here is that we are encouraged to arm ourselves, arm yourselves. Uh, in the Greek, the, the, that, the, the original word there is a military term. Speaks of preparing yourself for battle putting on the proper arm or gaining the proper weapons. Now, for us, it's not physical in nature. We are to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ to be of the same mind as Christ who is willing to suffer. But we first have to realize and recognize that the Christian life is not a playground. The Christian life is a battleground. Jesus Christ didn't come from heaven to earth. He's a great example of of what we should follow and emulate. Christ didn't come from heaven to earth to be celebrated. Christ came from heaven to earth to be crucified, to die in the place of sinners, guilty sinners like you and I so that we could be forgiven and that we might receive everlasting life. And so Christ came knowing that he would suffer and knowing that he would die. Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. We need to be ready and we need to be prepared. That's how you follow the example of Christ. Jesus came prepared. It wasn't a surprise to him when people started to persecute him, when people wanted to take his life because he claimed that God was his father. As he made these I am statements, people tried to take hold of Christ. It wasn't a surprise to him and it certainly wasn't a surprise to him when he was taken and crucified on a cross. He came willingly. No one took his life from him. He gave it up willingly. And so we follow the example of Christ first by arming ourselves, but secondly, by adopting the mindset of Christ. What is the mindset of Christ? It's a mindset of suffering. It's a mindset of suffering this morning how did Christ adopt an attitude of and a mindset of suffering whose purpose was that of suffering first if we read throughout scripture by adopting a mindset of humility Philippians 2 5 through 8 give us example of this let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ suffered in humility. Uh, secondly, the mindset of Christ in suffering was also suffering suffering in sacrifice. Matthew 16, verse 24, invites us into that journey. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. Jesus knew that he would be persecuted and so all those who follow him should expect to be persecuted as well. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It was also a mindset of as he suffered one in which he looked forward to the reward that would come after because his suffering was simply temporary if you read Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Christ had a mindset of suffering because he lived in light of eternity and the eternal glory that he would receive as he ascends to the right hand of the father victorious over sin death and satan and so what we're reminded of here is the mindset of christ is is one of suffering in humility is one of suffering with sacrifice in mind deny yourself take up your cross and follow after me jesus says and is one in which you suffer recognizing the reward that lies ahead you know, as we've been walking through First Peter, some of you are thinking to yourself, man, this is, this is kind of a downer. <laughs> I mean, as we walk through the letter of 1 Peter, we talk about suffering so much. We talked about suffering last week. We're talking about suffering this week. Why are we talking about suffering so much? So that you're trained and prepared when it comes. So that when you see it, when you experience it, you know that it's inevitable so that you don't say, oh no, where did this come from? God, how could you allow this to happen? Well, Jesus said, prepare for it because you're gonna have to endure it. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We need need to be reminded of that. So we start to adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ, follow his example if I could give you a couple practical ways to do that is the first one is prepare for battle every morning by means of spending time with God in his word and prayer now some of you may know this already I know this already it's one thing to know it it's another thing to do it there are some mornings where my mind likes to wander about the wander forward to to, to think about the, the the details of the day I want to think about my schedule. I want to think about my to do list. But I know if I'm going to start my day right, I better start it with my mind on Him. My mind set on Christ, and my mind set upon His Word, and my mind set upon Him in prayer. It takes discipline. There are times my mind wants to go somewhere. I want to worry about this. I I want to think about that. But the first thing my mind should go to is my mind should be set on Christ. Prepare for battle every morning by fixing your eyes on Christ. Secondly, prepare for battle, not just by abiding with Christ, because that's what that means as you stay connected with him, but take time to taste the sweetness of Christ every day. Bible says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." I want to take some time to remind you this morning that the bitterness that you may experience in life because of adversity or struggle, even pers- or pressures of persecution. Doesn't compare to the sweetness and the joy of being in a relationship with Jesus. Some of us, you know, as Christians, we we simply go through the motions. We read the word. we, we, We take time to pray. But if you're in the word and you pray and you haven't drawn any closer to Christ, you've wasted your time. The invitation of God's word is to know him through his word and to taste the sweetness and the joy of being in his presence. There are going to be times that are difficult. There are going to be f- places that you face adversity. But the bitterness of that doesn't compare to the surpassing sweetness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our Lord. I read this uh, about a Russian countess who had accepted the Lord Jesus as her Savior and was open about her testimony. The Tsar was displeased and threw her into prison. After 24 hours with the lowest level of Russian society in the most miserable conditions imaginable, he ordered her brought into his presence. He smiled sarcastically and said, Well, are you ready now to renounce your silly faith and come back to the pleasures of the court? To his surprise, the countess smiled serenely and said, I have known... More, I have known more real joy and more real happiness in one day in prison with Jesus than I've known in a lifetime in the courts of Tsar. Can I encourage you to be reminded of to taste and see that the Lord is good. And even in the face of adversity, find contentment in the care of your shepherd who loves you, who cares for you, who comforts you, who leads you and guides you. It doesn't matter the circumstance or the adversity you may face. The sweetness of God's presence surpasses any bitterness you should experience in this life. How are we to live in light of the hope that we have? In light of what Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Thirdly, in our text, by means of counting ourselves dead to sin, Count yourself dead to sin. Verse 1 finishes and says, well, let me read it to you. From arm yourselves also with the same mind. Then it says, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For those of us who are believers who have adopted the mindset of Christ, which is that of suffering, those who are committed to Christ in suffering have been first committed themselves to Christ in purity and holy living. What we're reminded this morning is in a growingly hostile culture to the things of God and to the people of God, you and I have two choices to make in this world. You can either choose suffering or you can choose sin. You can choose sin and the world will love you. You can choose sin and adopt the value systems of the world and talk the language of the world. And let me tell you this, the world will accept you. It will tolerate you. It will love you. But if you choose to live a life set apart to God, live according to a value system, not of this world, but of this word, you will be hated. We read that in John. John chapter 15 verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Choose sin or suffering. Because if you choose suffering, you've committed yourself to live a holy life to God. And when you commit your life to live a holy life to God, the world will hate you. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, the expectation is you're going to be persecuted as well. If you if Jesus experienced hostility and hatred, how much the, how much more those who follow the principles of his world? Word. You know, those who live according to the world system in Jesus' day. When you consider those who live according to the world system today, if they responded that way to Jesus, you better expect them to respond to us the same way if we adopt the principles of God that God gives us in his word. So how do you count yourself dead to sin? First and foremost, by your commitment to Christ, even in suffering. Because those who have committed to Christ to suffer for for him are also those who are committed to live a pure life with him. You know, when it says ceased for, to sin, it doesn't mean that we experience sinless perfection, but it means we count ourselves dead to sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it gives us some context. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus our Lord so count yourself dead to sin by your commitment to Christ if anyone desires to follow after me Jesus says deny yourself take up your cross and follow after me Jesus wasn't just giving us some nice statement that we could read and we could follow he's literally saying if you're going to follow me follow me even to the point of death so count yourself dead to sin committing yourself to suffering in Christ but secondly by means of no longer living for the desires of the flesh, but the will of God. We continue to read in verse 2, it says this, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but the, but the will of God. What Peter tells us and reminds us is, whether you realize it or not, life is brief and life is short. We're reminded that we're not promised tomorrow. You know, as you grow older in age, time goes by so much quicker. You look back and you say, oh my goodness, I can't believe 10 years has passed, 20 years has passed. I feel like I just graduated high school and here I am today. Life goes by so very quickly. And what Peter is instructing us to do is don't waste your time any longer in the desires of the flesh, but pursue the will of God because your time on earth is limited. The desires of the flesh speak of those illegitimate desires, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. Don't pursue those things. Pursue Christ and Him crucified. Live for Him and Him alone. Don't waste your time on the things of the flesh, but live for the will of God. Psalm 90 verse 10 reminds us of the brevity of life. The days of our lives are 70 years. And by reason of strength, they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for, for it is soon cut off and we all fly away. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you read about a book where Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Life is like a breath that is here for a moment and, and disappears. It's meaningless apart from Christ who gives meaning and purpose and a relationship with God. Life is brief. Life is precious. Don't live for the desires of the flesh or the lusts of the flesh, but live for the will of God. How do I know what the will of God is? By reading the word of God. As you stay committed to God and his word, his word is a light unto your feet, a lamp unto our path. 2 Timothy 3.16, it seems like we quote it every week. All scripture is God-breathed and It's profitable. doctrine reproof correction instruction and righteousness that the man or woman of god may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work everything we need to know what the will of god is for our life is in this book what a blessing to have it and have access to it as much as we do here today and so this morning count yourself dead to sin by living not for the lusts of men, but living for the will of God. If I could give us a couple takeaways, the first one is this. Spend more time serving the will of God over the desires of men. I'd like to invite you to, to actually do this and take an inventory of your week last week and ask yourself, how much time did I spent spend serving the desires of men over the will of God? T- tonight, you know, after... You get home from church and you go about your business or on Monday after a full day, take time to take an inventory of your day and ask yourself, how much was I serving the will of man and the desires of the flesh over the will of God? Take one step further. Don't just take an inventory of your life. Take time to do it with a spouse, with a family member or a friend and say, let's take an inventory of our day together or our week together. How much time did we spend focusing on the desires of the flesh over the will of God? And you know what it helps us? It helps us live in light of the hope that we have. In light of what Christ has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, count yourself dead to sin. And then secondly, ask God to make sin bitter and obedience sweet. Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Genuine repentance is not just confessing your sins. It's about having a contrite heart. There are plenty of people who say, God, I'm going to take time. I'm going to confess my sins. Uh, uh, I did it. Again, I may, may have gone through this habitual sin again and again and again. And, and God, this time I'm going to confess it. I, I claim 1 John nine. I know if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness and then move forward. No, don't just move forward. Weep over the sin that you've committed and the consequences that it has brought. Don't just confess your sin. Be broken over your sin. And you read about what genuine repentance looks like in, in Psalm 51 as David expresses a psalm of contrition and confession. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin. It's always before me. Against you, you alone only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Are you so broken over sin and the consequences that is brought to your life that it feels so painful as if broken bones have been experienced? Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me keep going because it's so good. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. God, use my repentance as a witness to others. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. But you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken heart and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Stop going through the motions and give your heart over to the Lord. Give a heart that is broken over to him, so that he can mend it and build you up once again. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. May the sin that you walk in and the sin that you rebel against God with taste more bitter every day. And may you taste the sweetness of walking in obedience to God and the joy of being in His presence. When you experience the consequences and the guilt of sin, take time to stay there for just a moment. Experience what it means to have a broken heart. Confess your sin. Be broken over your sin. But then receive the joy of your salvation. Because the sweetness of salvation and forgiveness is fully realized when you see the depth and the brokenness of your own sin. And so... Count yourself dead to sin. Fourthly, leave the past behind. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, um, oh, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Peter says, listen, you spent too much time wasting your time. Now Peter is not talking to, probably talking to Gentile converts, not talking to Jewish converts here because he's saying, talks about the the lifestyle of the Gentiles. It's not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of the kind of lifestyle they lived. It says, a lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when you walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunken parties, and abominable idolatries. (laughs) You know, you go through a list like that and you say, well, that sounds like college these days. Good representation of it. When you take a look at the world and the value systems of the world, you read about what the old lifestyle was marked by. Let me take them apart one by one. Lewdness. Lewdness. It speaks of, of all kind of evil that lacks restraint. Lusts speak of illegitimate desires. Not just illegitimate sexual desires, but all illegitimate desires that control people drunkenness speaks of abuse of alcohol and it speaks of intoxication it speaks of lacking control and 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 being drunken with wine or alcohol uh, revelries uh, speaks of parties that are marked by sexual immorality you might see in your text orgies there drinking parties you know you only go to the party in order to drink and get drunk and And just have a good time doing it. That's what the world says. Come and join me. And then it says abominable idolatries. Isn't it interesting that you see the list and then it lists idolatry because ultimately as you pursue the pleasures of the world, you are committing adultery and idolatry against God. You're saying, pleasure is my God. I am here to serve myself. Step off the throne of your life and allow God to rule and reign there. And then in verse four, it says, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So this is speaking of Gentile converts and uh, they receive Christ as their savior and Lord and their life changes. And you know what the response of their friends are? Surprise. <laughs> I can't believe you're, you've changed. I can't believe you're, you're not going out and parting with us tonight. I can't believe you're not going to, to go to these drunken parties and, and, and to participate in all kinds of evils without any sense of restraint. It's, it's surprise. Why are they surprised? Well, because they want you to join them. Because if you join them, ultimately you justify their sin. Let me take a moment to remind you of this. If ever you are tempted to join in the desires of the flesh or the lusts of this world, be reminded that when you participate in that sin, all you're doing is justifying their sin in their own eyes. And they're all they're saying is, oh, it's fine. You say, well, I don't want to offend them. Well, it's better to offend them temporarily in order to save their eternal soul from hell and damnation. Take a moment to consider the seriousness of sin. And their response is that of surprise. Secondly, their response is that of slander. Oh, you're a Christian now? One of those hypocrites. One of those closed minded, intolerant people. You're one of those individuals. It begins with surprise. It moves to slander. Now these are words of persecution or pressures of persecution and we have it moved to the point of physical persecution or to the point of death but the initial response is surprise and that of slander. How were the Christians in the first century slandered? Well they were slandered in a number of ways. They were called incestuous. One of the reasons was because you looked at uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ and you were you married to your sister in Christ. They're not your, your biological sister, but you refer to them that way. Uh, they also called believers atheists. The reason is because they only believe in one God, and so they don't believe in all the pantheon of gods, and so you're an atheist in that regard, and also you're a cannibal. You eat the body and you drink the blood of Jesus Christ. These Christians are sick and so it's not just surprise, it's slander. There are plenty of things that go around in regards to Christian. Turn on a television show, watch a movie today and see how Hollywood portrays believers and Christians. It's always in a negative light. And so this morning we're encouraged to leave the past behind in practical ways to do that, first, separate yourself from past sins. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 speaks of that. And also 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> what a wonderful par- portion of Scripture right there. That was your past. That was what you w- once lived as. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, do not be deceived evil company corrupts good habits don't just separate yourself from your past lifestyle of sin separate yourself from sinful influences in your life now one of the questions may be, well I want to be a witness for Christ in their lives well you legitimately can be a witness for Christ if you're drawing them closer to God if they're not drawing you further away from Him <laughs> If ever in your witness you feel as if your friends or those you're witnessing to are drawing you further away from God than you drawing them to God, maybe you should consider cutting off that relationship. So take time to separate yourself from sin. And secondly, separate yourself from ungodly influences and live for Christ. C.S. Lewis in... Mere Christianity writes this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Take a moment to consider that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer should you be living a life set apart to the things of the world, but set apart to the things of God. Put to death sin in your life. Leave behind your old past lifestyle. Don't waste any more time. This time on earth is precious. Live for the will of God, not the lusts of men. And then lastly, this morning, how are we to live in light of the hope that we have by means of living in light of eternity? live in light of eternity verse 5 says this it says they will give an account to him those who are surprised and those who slander you those who had pressures of persecution after you have accepted christ and your lifestyle has changed and they say why You, you are you unwilling to justify my sin by participating in it they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead this is a warning to every single person That judgment is inevitable, that we will stand before God and we will give an account. Even believers will give an account, not an account unto condemnation, but an account unto commendation. We will be rewarded because we are in Christ, but those who are not in Christ on the last day, when the judgment comes, they will give an account for their words and for their works for their attitudes, their affections and their actions and they will have to pay the debt that is owed against their sin. Let me remind you this morning, if you're sitting in here today and you recognize judgment is before you, let today be the day of salvation. Don't kick the can down the road. (laughs) Admit your need for Christ and the forgiveness of sins and receive that forgiveness and the everlasting life he offers in his name. You know, some people like to take the word of God and say, well, I don't want to convince people to accept Christ on the basis of fear in order to to keep them from hell, but I want them to love Jesus and follow after Christ. Well, first of all, you're not convincing anybody. First of all, God is the one who changes the heart. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. Our responsibility is simply to share the bad news first and then share the good news of Christ who bridges the gap. When I came to faith in Christ, my brother, I think he was, I was something like six or seven. He was six years older than me. He said, well, you better accept Christ this week. It was vacation Bible school week. And he said, if you don't, judgment is before you. (laughs) and can I tell you that put enough fear in me to understand the gospel, and I understood the gospel, and I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, but after that, as I grow and mature in the faith, I learn that the following Jesus is about my love for him, tasting the sweetness and the goodness of God and understanding the bitterness of sin and the consequences that come from it. Live in light of eternity by living in light of the future judgment to come. And then secondly, live in light of eternity by being reminded as believers we've been given everlasting life. Verse 6 concludes this way. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. What it means there, those who are dead, those who are now dead, is probably speaking of those who were living heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and now they're dead perhaps they've been martyred for their faith that they might be judged according to men in the flesh and so having accepted Christ having heard the gospel ultimately they've responded in in faith and uh, they've been persecuted for their faith but then it says but live according to God in the spirit the worst that people can do to you in this life is kill your body (laughs) But we don't have to fear those who kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and destroy the soul in an eternity without God and His people forever and ever. As believers, this is the encouragement. This is the training that we've been given. You and I can believe and know that suffering and adversity is inevitable. Even though it's inevitable, we're reminded that the temporary bitterness of suffering doesn't compare to the eternal sweetness of God's glory that is to come as we will rule and reign with Him forever and ever and ever. This morning, can I encourage you today, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, we know we're not promised tomorrow. Take a moment right now to look in your heart and consider if today's the day you need to make Jesus your Savior and your Lord. Admit your need for him. Secondly, as believers and as Christians, may I continue to encourage us that we would live faithfully even in the face of hostility and hardship. And that we would set our lives apart to the things of God in all things. Let me close with this last illustration. Stephen Coles tells of the ermine, which is a small animal known for its snow white fur. It lives in the forests of northern Europe. God has put into this animal an instinctive drive to protect his glossy coat from becoming soiled. Interesting animal. Hunters capitalize on this trait. Instead of setting a mechanical trap, they find the ermine's home in a cleft of a rock or a hollow hollow tree and dab the entrance of the interior with tar. Then their dogs start the chase and the frightened ermine flees towards his home but finding it covered with tar, he won't enter. Even to save his life, he will face the yelping dogs who hold him at bay until the hunters capture him rather than soiling his white fur. So for the ermine, purity is more dear than life. Can I ask you this morning, is purity and living a life set apart to God more dear to you than your own life? Can we pray? Father, we thank you that your word is a training manual. That prepares us for adversity, that prepares us for pressures of persecution, that prepares us even for growing hostility in this world so that if we should ever face adversity, when we face pressures of persecution, we would not have to think about how we're going to respond but having prepared our minds and having prepared ourselves for action, Lord we would react in accordance with your will informed by your word. And so, Father, I pray that the greatest motivation for us to live for you would be the hope that we have in Jesus and what he has accomplished through his suffering, his his death, his resurrection, the one we will rule and reign with forevermore. I pray, Father, in this moment that we would taste and see that you are good and that the sweetness of your presence is much more valuable than the bitterness of temporary pleasures or fleshly desires or sin in this life. We pray, Father, that we would grow in our love for you as we grow in our knowledge of you as well. Father, I want to pray this morning for the heart that needs Jesus, that recognizes that they are not in a right standing before him. Uh, Father, may they make this commitment right now. Father, I recognize That I'm a sinner my sin separates me from God, but I know that's why Jesus came That's why he suffered and that's why he died in order to forgive my sins To remove that which separates and to bring me close in a relationship with God Today I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord. And when I'm going to follow all the days of eternity, all the days of my life into eternity. Father, thank you for these words. May they guide and direct us in the days ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.